Broadcasting to New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, Sydney, London, and around the world, this is Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio Live on this Wednesday on 101.3 KPCG. Coming up on today's program, you might have seen some of the uh, controversy, I guess, over the new uh, portraits of former President Obama and his wife. Uh, it's interesting to look at the background of the artists that made those paintings. We have a story about that. Also, uh, marriage is a great anti-poverty program. So why does the government discourage that? That's a write-up that we have to look at as well. And also, men doing hard things. It's a good thing. That and more. This edition of Trumpet Radio Live. This is Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio Live on Wednesday, 101.3 KPCG. And we're online at kpcg.fm. You can follow us on Twitter at kpcgfm. If you'd like to email us, send any emails to comments at kpcg.fm. We're happy to take a look at those for you. Uh, I'm Dwight Falk, Grant Turgeon here today as well. On what is turning out to be a balmy couple of days here in central Oklahoma, getting up into the 70s next couple of days. Then dropping back down to the 40s. Then probably jumping back up to the 70s at some point. Then dropping back down to the 30s. <laughs> it's it's, it's a, one of the stranger winters that I can remember as far as just the way the temperatures keep jumping around. And yet hardly any uh, snow. It's been down near zero for quite some time throughout this winter at, at random times, like you said. And it might have frozen over a little bit once, but it hasn't really produced any sort of snow or ice besides that yeah winter without a little bit of snow can be somewhat depressing if it's colder so <laughs> it's funny watching the olympics uh, over there in south korea of course knowing full well as we talked about i think last week there's a real climate change agenda that's kind of being pushed at the olympics they've had to postpone certain events because it's the weather is too wintry <laughs> it's too windy it's too cold to, to actually do the winter events so uh, which which I can understand if you're skiing and it's too windy, it's hard to do it. But uh, part of me fe- feels like, well, but it is the Winter Olympics. Like, get out there and <laughs> go down the mountain. I mean, it, it is winter time. Yeah, it never gets old to hear how uh, the actual weather contradicts the climate change alarmists every time. And if this were football, they'd still be playing unless there were lightning. But apparently maybe too much uh, snow on a slope is too dangerous i guess i don't know they uh, last night in the primetime coverage they had uh, the the men's snowboarding which was pretty exciting those guys really get up there and dangerous too and uh Sean White he he won his third gold medal so the third time he's done it and he had a setback last olympics and he had a pretty bad injury earlier uh, or recently in the last few years so it was ex- it was exciting it was it was exciting to see him win in his last run and uh, so that was that was pretty neat to watch. Um, and then he, he did get a little bit of flack though because they gave him the flag, the American flag, and he was he, it, it got on the ground at some point, which you're not supposed to do. And then and I, I kind of I felt really bad f- just for the fact that that even came up or that was an issue. I, the guys are trying to carry like five or six things, and then right away they give them their nation's flag. It's like they they, they maybe somebody could just carry it for him or something. I don't think he came out and apologized and said, "Oh, I'm sorry, I you know I just had my hands full." And I. I think that's true. Uh, 
I don't know. It, it seems like as soon as somebody wins, the, the, right away they want to put the flag in their hands, and sometimes they don't have anywhere to hold on to it or anything to do with it. So I don't. Maybe there's a better way to do that. Well, it seemed like he was pretty proud of the flag. He was holding it over his head in both hands, uh, but then he had to take off his snowboard. Then he took off his helmet, and he was holding all this stuff. And it's not like he put the flag on the ground. It just a little bit of it started dragging behind him while he was walking, at least from what I saw. I, I never saw him actually drop it or put it on yeah. the ground. Uh, there is quite a contrast between the way we treat the flag in that way versus other nations. I've seen people from other nations, maybe athletes after a sporting event, they're wiping sweat out off their face with the flag. Really? They'll drop it. They'll drop it on the ground, no problem. And apparently, no one cares. But uh, at least we have more respect for it here. Yeah, well, there are some specific rules to the way you're supposed to handle it, um, but I don't know that unless unless people are really involved in some sort of Boy Scouts or something, I don't know that they know all the rules. I know when we were in grade school, once we got up into sixth grade, part of our we would get jobs each, I don't know, couple of months. Like maybe you would take the milk around to the different classrooms, the morning milk. One of the jobs was the flag. You had to put it up in the morning, you had to take it down at night, and then so we had to go by step by step like how you would do it the proper way i don't remember all of it but i but i do know we learned that um back when i was in school right because i guess uh, a big part of it is just to keep it keep the flag out of the element so it doesn't get frayed on the end which is pretty a pretty bad thing and you usually want to get the flag replaced when that happens but if you just take it down every day that that preserves it for a lot longer yeah so there are rules to that but uh, anyway it was interesting to see and, and fun to see some success there from some of those different uh, athletes one of the big stories over the last few days it's an interesting story and uh, it's it's uh, about the portraits of uh, former president obama and his wife and uh, they're unique uh, to say the least a uh, lot getting a lot of reaction <laughs> to kind of do- it really depends on what side of the political aisle people are on as to their reaction to it people that are pro uh the obama administration they think it's the greatest thing they've ever seen those on the other side are saying, I don't know, it doesn't really look like, in the case of Mrs. Obama, it doesn't really look like her. So there's always interpretations there. But I thought it was interesting to look at who these artists are because I think that's the big story here. And uh, it said that there was two different artists that did the portraits. It says, who is, uh, Kena- uh, I don't know how you pronounce his name. Kende? <laughs> Wiley. I don't Mr. Know. Wiley, I'll call him. I'm not, I've never seen the name before. Artist unveils uh, the uh, portraits there, the official portraits. Wiley, a Yale University-trained artist, is the first African-American artist to have his work featured in the National Portrait Gallery. He is known for his larger-than-life, regal, and color-filled portraits. He often uses the heroes, saints, and prophets featured in old master paintings from the Renaissance era and 1800s, and then he replaces them with figures of black men and women. So he's gotten a reputation for doing this, where these are famous paintings of the past, and he just replaces the people and puts in black people. Um, I that's bizarre to me. I guess I don't know. I guess anybody could do that, right? You could, I could, I you know, whatever nationality you are, you could do that. But uh, again, it's it's really a sign of protest, and he's sort of a protest artist. And so, Mr. Obama chose him to make his portrait. Yeah, and this artist does seem to be uh, what they call extremely racially conscious. Yeah, he's so he's a very controversial artist. He was chosen specifically for this. He also has done paintings. I uh, hate to even bring it up, but of. Uh, some black ladies holding a decapitated head of a white woman. I mean, the, I hate to even mention that, but I mean, that's what's out there. Terrible, terrible thing to paint, no matter, yeah, it's just terrible. But anyway, so he, those are some of his paintings. In, in a 2015 interview with the New York Times, the artist spoke about breaking down stereotypes 
of black Americans through his artistry, as well as highlighting the racial disparities suffered by minorities in the U.S., uh, those efforts attracted Obama to Wiley's work. Uh, Mr. Obama said, what I was always struck by when I saw his portraits was the degree to which they challenged our ideas of power and privilege. So that's what they're going after here. And then the artist that did uh, Mrs. Obama's, uh, it says, the uh, this, this write-up says, a sneaky political message in Michelle Obama's portrait dress. And uh, the the person that did, I guess, she has this particular dress on in the portrait, and it was made by this uh, this fashion designer. Last September, she, she debuted T-shirts commemorating 100 years of Planned Parenthood. According to a story in the Washington Post, Smith said that Obama's dress is based on one that was in her spring 2017 collection. It, it was inspired by a desire for equality in human rights, racial equality, LGBTQ equality. One of the recurring elements in the collection were various forms of lacing and ties. The details were meant to suggest a feeling of being held back that were not quite there yet. The finish line is still off in the distance. So something as you would think as simple as just some portraits have become very, very much a political and racial issue. And it, it, it's, it's the same line of thinking that was in, their, in that administration when they were in office. Right. And uh, there's a whole lot here that is just blatantly incorrect president and first lady uh that's a pretty exalted status in the country yet this off this artist's message is that we're not there yet how much farther up do you need to go (laughs) before you're finally there i mean what else does it take before people are happy with what they've been given in life it's just so much uh ingratitude and entitlement in in these artists way of thinking and and even if you just look at any amount of charts about who's doing the best in the country it's it's asian people they're 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 trying to denounce white privilege they're attacking the white race and yet asians make about ten thousand dollars per household every single year than white people do and even a website that i looked at with all these different uh supposed disparities it has it has the asians at the top of the income list and then there's like 10 or 11 more charts on the page and they just somehow, for some reason, removed Asians from all the rest of the charts so that it would look like the whites were at the top. Uh, it's clearly an attack on the white race, um, and it doesn't make a lot of sense because they're not even at the top of the country. The whites are not even doing the best in America right now. There's a really uh, important book that gets into what's really going on with these things. It's America Under Attack, and you can find that at thetrumpet.com. Even though I know we've moved on to a different administration, it's still the issues are still out there. And there's an interesting little uh, quote here from this booklet, and it talks about will worship, and it says, Adolf Hitler said that if you tell a big lie and repeat it enough, eventually people will believe it. Just keep saying it. People believe it. They certainly did that in Germany, it says. We are seeing bold, blatant lies become a bigger and bigger part of today's political landscape. This is a sure sign of Satan's growing power. Uh, You know, that's something people don't talk about too much, but Satan is in power. That's what the Bible says. We are seeing the work of this lying murderer at his worst. He's a father of lies. There's no truth in him. But he will still look you boldly in the eye and insist that everything he says is the truth. Does that sound familiar? No. No, we have to get rid of this inequality. Well, where is that coming from? That's division. That's not unity. That's division. And division comes from Satan. That's the that's the source of all these toxic messages. I mean, here you have such a, an obvious logical fallacy that anyone who looks at it should be able to pick it out 
But what they're trying to say is that if you are born a certain race, you're automatically stuck at a certain level. Uh, and there are people who are actively going to be keeping you there. That's not true. That is not true in any way in America. It might be true in other places where there might be a religious caste system, uh, as in India. But there's nothing like that here. And there are plenty of examples of people who are doing really well, people of all different races, yet that is continually ignored so that we can push this myth, this propaganda, uh, these satanic lies that somehow white people need to pay reparations, for example, or white people are, are just the cause of the evils in society in America. That That's too much. And it's obvious that we need to have truth to extinguish all these lies that are being told. Yeah, that's the thing. What's the what's the truth of the matter here? There's a lot of lot of division and even pops up in these these portraits. So anyway, it's just interesting when you look at the artists that were picked and what their message is because it it says a lot about what the message is. And even even you were saying yesterday how uh someone was writing about how the portrait doesn't look like Michelle Obama yet it doesn't matter. Well, we we're we're at the point where we can't even objectively analyze something and say well, you know, usually portraits are supposed to look like the person we're we're drawing. That doesn't even matter anymore. It, it's all about ideology and whatever you feel like you want to believe, you can believe that. Yeah, it's, it's will worship. It's just, uh, well, that's that's the, the what people are saying, so we just have to go ahead and believe it, even if it's not true. And uh, I think it's just interesting, too, if you look at Philippians 4 and verse 8, it just talks about, uh, you know, if you can find anything that's true, if you can find anything that's honest, Anything that's just, pure, if it's if it's lovely, if it if it is a good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything to be praised, those are the things that people should try to think on. So in any walk of life, there will be things that come up that you'd prefer not to have go that way or you feel like it maybe it's unjust or something. But the instruction here clearly is find the good things and report on those. And that to me that's the big one of the big issues too with some of the the messages that are out there and they're in the media still about, you know, all this division between people we, or, or attacking the way the United States was founded. Um, you can't find anything good. Nothing good ever happened. Never. Not once. Nothing good. That's not true. There's a lot of good to think about, but unfortunately many, many people want to find the divisive topics and not think about the good unifying topics. And the same people who are constantly pushing these divisive uh, topics to talk about uh, they would denounce anyone who disagrees with them as being hateful and bigoted. Here's an example of actual hatred and bigotry that people will not point out uh, because those people in a lot of areas tend to agree with them. So they're not going to point out the fact that, uh, well, this is actually racism against white people, what they're doing. It's pretty out there and in the open, but no one will call them out for it. Yep, lots of division there. So America Under Attack talks about that, and you really get insight into where all this division is really coming from. There's an interesting write-up at Yahoo Business today about uh, the United Kingdom. UK outs extremism, blocking tool, and could force tech firms to use it. So they're, uh, this company has developed this tool to look at videos and determine if they're extremists. Basically, they're looking at, say, uh, Islamic extremism and they, they think they can block it very quickly. However, because there are so many videos put up, inevitably they're going to block some that don't need to be blocked. So the government's really excited about this over there. They want to block all this extremism off the Internet. But, of course, 
what becomes a little bit difficult is the fact that, well, what, what do you mean by extremism? I mean, everyone can agree on, say, terrorists, like that's a bad thing. But even in this write-up, they say, uh, well, you know, hey, maybe, um, you know, I don't know, far-right extremism. Far-right <laughs> extremism? Where is, what is far-right <laughs> extremism? Like, I know there might be a handful of people out there that are kind of into that, but what are they talking about? See, that the danger in this is when you start putting in tools to say, no, this is extreme, it's 1984, right, all over again, <laughs> or for the first time in reality where, or in in this country or in the UK where they're going to start to censorship or censor a lot of ideas. Some of them maybe should be stopped, but then some uh, shouldn't be. And, and so people are getting a little nervous about this. When in history has the ability to censor or to abuse government power ever not been used? So here in the UK, there's this possibility for censoring only radical Islamic extremist messages, but doesn't that capability always get used and then expanded? Like this person even said in the article, well, if these people are in charge of this censorship tool and they happen to not like some other messages, not just from ISIS, but from a a group that they deem as far right, whatever they feel is far right, well, can't they just block that as well? Isn't that also possible for these people? I mean, if they can censor, they can censor anything. And even like it says in this article uh, with Facebook, if there's like a billion pieces of content posted per day, uh, the math says that 50,000 pieces of content will get blocked every day. And a lot of those will just be unjustly blocked. Right. And then who do you who do you um, protest to and say, hey, why did you block my video or my message? Some of the people that commented on the story had some good points, I thought. Uh, one person says, it's funny how the article brings up, quote, far-right extremism but fails to mention far-left extremism. It seems that it is always the far left trying to silence speech and commit violence against those that they disagree with. Antifa, anyone? (laughs) I mean, it's a good point. And then one other comment says, uh, the problem is, quote, extremism is subjective. Once they have the apparatus to deny people free speech justified by ISIS recruitment websites, how long until that targets something else? Think 1984 when I see these things. Mm -hmm. So that's coming up a lot where people are like, yeah, you shouldn't allow these radical Islamic videos and so forth up there, but um, <laughs> is that where it ends? Once you take that sort of power, or are you going to censor whatever message you don't agree with? And this is the type of censorship that they're thinking about in the United Kingdom that's already used in Russia, China, Turkey, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Arabia Vietnam. It's not something that you would think would happen in the United Kingdom, but that's it's happening now. And I saw another article where it it just talks about how Silicon Valley is even just falling right in line with any government that wants to censor things. I guess for business, it might be good for them just to comply. So it's pretty easy if a government says they want to censor to get Facebook or Google or any of these other companies to go right along with it. Yeah, it's it's gonna be it's interesting the the technology and the fact that. there's so much information that's out there, like we talked about briefly the other day. People are putting so much information out there, but it's all going to the Internet. And you have people that can control the Internet. Uh, they do it in other nations, as you brought out. And a good point, too, about looking at some of those other nations is, yeah, they, they definitely censor their Internet, but what do they how do they censor it? In favor of the government propaganda. Because that's that's the whole issue, is staying in power, Right. That's what always happens with things like this. So that's why I think people are concerned about it. And uh, 
1984 is a uh, a book to maybe go back and read and think about a little bit because uh, <laughs> we see these things happening. And like you said, they're they're common in Russia and some areas like that, but now we're starting to see it creep into the West too. Right, and the podcast, Just the Best Literature, you can find that at thetrumpet.com. Also, it's talking about that book, 1984, right now, and it's been a really interesting discussion, and it's such a, a timely book to talk about right now because – China's literally putting in in that facial recognition technology. Uh, that was mentioned on the Trumpet Hour today, and we talked about it for a little bit last week too. Uh, but you know, every every block you walk or drive, there's a camera there in China that could see exactly who you are, what you're doing, where you're going, and it's just obviously a lot of power in the government's hands at that point. If if you ever do anything that they would disagree with. They know exactly where you are. Is that the kind of power that we want our governments to have? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, because like you know, I think uh, I think it is mentioned specifically on the Trumpet Hour just that point today about how, and you brought it up too. Governments that have these types of powers always use them. Yeah, they never, and they don't use them for the benefit of the people. And that's that's maybe the dream that people might have. Like, no, they would they would always use it to benefit the the people they're serving. Well. They serve themselves, typically, of the people's resources. That's usually the way it goes. And we saw a lot of that with um, the last administration here. A lot of different agencies were weaponized and politicized to target President Obama's political opponents. And sure, maybe millions of people agreed with that at the time because they were supporters of President Obama. But the problem is a new administration comes in. You might not agree with them anymore. uh, And the way that they decide to censor and try to muzzle people... Uh, and they could then ter- turn that exact same power on you. That's that's the problem. You might, for a while, agree with the person in power who is censoring others, but as soon as that's directed on you, you won't find it so pleasant. Censorship's an interesting question. E- even even the the uh, those portraits we were mentioning earlier of uh, the former president and first lady. Uh, there's lots of stories about them, and on on some platforms. That, that aren't even necessarily conservative. They're like, say, Yahoo is just kind of, they throw up a lot of stuff. Um, they have a write-up about the uh, portraits, and you read the comments, and there's thousands of them, and, you know, I don't read all of them, but a, a few, you go through, you know, a, a, a bit of them. And most all of them were fairly negative. Like, they didn't like the portraits, they didn't like the artists, they had some real issues with it, and then there'd be a few in there that did like it. Well, then I looked at one from, I think it was New York Times maybe today, and they were pretty positive in their review, and they said, "Tell us what you. We want to know what you think about these these portraits." There's like sixty comments, and I read them, and they were all positive. <laughs> Somebody censored that. I mean, maybe the readership just literally—that's the only people that read their stuff. But I, I tend to think there'd be a few others. That how can one site have all the comments, thousands of them, and most are negative, and then another site? Have all oh, they're all positive. Everybody loves it. Like, <laughs> like it seems to me like there's a gatekeeper there. I don't know that for sure, but the the, the numbers just don't add up. Yeah, the New York Times. Uh, I've kind of noticed that a little bit with them too. On that Trumpet Daily Radio show yesterday, Mr. Stephen Flurry was talking about um, how there's that porn literacy class in this Massachusetts high school, and that it's one of the most outrageous articles you'll ever read because it's saying basically we can't stop anyone from viewing sexually explicit content. So we have to teach these young kids how to analyze it the right way. That's what the class was all about. And I saw maybe one negative comment in there. One, one comment that said, 
how about actually no one watches it because it's wrong anyway? That's There was only one out of the hundreds that I actually saw. And I was just skipping through them because after a while, it just became inevitable that they were all positive about the article. Yeah, like the the one I saw today where they were all positive. You know, when they said, tell us what you think, I think what they really meant was, tell us what you think if you agree with us. <laughs> and then if you don't, we just won't put it up. So it's interesting. The uh, Trumpet.com today, make sure you stop and check that out. Top story is American Tanks Fall Into Enemy Hands by Anthony Chabotaway. America is spending its strength in vain and spending it to empower its arch enemy. Uh, there was a report from February the 2nd that showed the United States Department of Defense Office of Inspector General that the uh, State Department acknowledged that some U.S. provided military equipment sent to support uh, the mission over there, including as many as nine M1 Abrams tanks, had fallen into the hands of Iranian-backed militias that uh, fought against the Islamic State in Iraq. So some of our uh, technology is getting into the hands of Iran and some of their supporters. And, of course, not only can they use it, but they can uh, reverse engineer it and find out what we're doing. And that's exactly what happened with one of our U.S. drones that was shot down back in 2011. Brent Nautigal talked about that on the Watch Jerusalem program on Sunday. Uh, just how they shot down this drone. <laughs> Barack Obama asked for it back and then said, we'll see how the Iranians respond. And of course, they didn't give it back. And and then over the weekend, uh, an Iranian drone that was patterned exactly after the one that they stole from us in 2011 went into Israeli airspace. Uh, the Israelis shot it down. Then they bombed Iranian targets in Syria, and one of the Israeli planes was shot down while they were doing that. Right. Uh, and then two of the guys had to eject from the plane. But that's that's actually a pretty good example of just what happens when you just let other nations steal your technology. We could have destroyed the drone when it was uh, shot down instead of just letting them pick it up and copy it. And today, seven years later, sure enough... Uh, this drone led to an Israeli plane getting shot down. And Israel's supposed to be our ally, though we forgot about that during the last administration. Yeah. How come that's not big headlines today? How come they're not, you know, connecting the dots back to why that's a problem? It's a pretty direct connect, too. It's yeah. not that hard to to uh, figure this out. Yeah. Iran, you know, made me think about their military and, and uh, just wondering kind of where they stack up. And according to this uh, report, Iran is currently ranked 21st out of 133 countries considered for the annual Global Firepower Review. And uh, so it's a 21st nation. Now, again, I, I'm sure they don't know everything about what's going on over there. And we're not even talking about nuclear power, but just other things. As far as manpower, uh, going beyond military equipment totals and perceived fighting strength is the actual manpower that drives a given military force. Wars of attrition traditionally favor those with more manpower to a given effort. That's why you don't want to mess with Russia and China, because they have more people than you do. So they take a look at some of the uh, the numbers here. Total uh, population, there is 82,801,000 roughly over in Iran. Manpower available, they say it's 47 uh, million. Fit for service is uh, just about $39 million. So if they they actually wanted to get those people going, that's a pretty good-sized military. Those are really great ratios to have almost half of your people fit to serve right now and to have way more than half ready to be drafted and then eventually made ready to serve. Right. And, you know, I mean, if you look at the way they've conducted a lot of their fighting recently, of course, it's it's all with, you know, terror groups. 
they don't necessarily go in and do a whole lot with a very structured military, but they mm-hmm. they send their their <laughs> their lackeys, I guess, in to blow themselves up. And if you're not gonna if you're not gonna confront it in a very forceful way, then you know you're fighting this sort of unwinnable war. And they just keep sending people in. Uh, their total military personnel is nine hundred thirty four thousand. Uh, they have air power. Uh, they have uh, army strength, uh, and which is growing. And <laughs> they they have a certain tank value. They say. Uh, they always look at that with these different militaries. Well, now they've got some of our tanks, so they'll probably increase in that. They talk about their Navy strength as well, and it's kind of funny because uh, they've brought us virtually to our knees with a bunch of dinghies, <laughs> right, zipping around and, and forcing us to surrender. And, you know, all, you remember the embarrassment that was yeah. just not too long ago. So they, th- I think that's been one of the most remarkable things and um, – also, it just fulfills Bible prophecy about God saying he would break the pride of our power in the U.S. We have way more power than they do, even even with the military they have. And yet, yet we just sit here, like you say, they steal, they take our drone and we ask for it back. You know, <laughs> when you're the power on the block, you don't have to ask anybody. But that's what, what has come to. And then, of course, the soldiers surrendering and, and buying back hostages and all, all that. You know, their military power is growing, but uh, the fact, it just... It, the fact that they've been able to have their way shows how much um, we don't have pride in our power in the U.S. anymore. Right, and the fact that they were able to hold some of our sailors hostage, uh, like you said, with with dinghies is extremely embarrassing. And it says here that they don't even have any aircraft carriers or destroyers. So it's not like they have this hugely formidable navy. They have a, a few dozen submarines, uh, but really that's about it. And they were still able to just completely humiliate the U.S. Navy. Yeah, it's really uh, quite a shame. So it's it's a very topical write-up today there at the uh, Trumpet.com. American tanks fall into enemy hands uh, by Anthony Chabotaway. So make sure you check that out. It's pretty uh, unnerving. Yeah, how long is it going to be before we see some sort of tech from that show up on the battlefield somewhere? Right. You know, yeah. and who knows what else? Who knows what else they have going on? Because uh, we, I was talking about the other day how, you know, even with—, even with uh, some of their their nuclear technology definitely we see it in North Korea. They think it's in Iran too. They just got they paid scientists from Ukraine and other places to come on down and just do their work for them. So they've got probably more tech than we're aware of. They have a lot more even just military power if you consider all their terrorist proxies, like you mentioned at the beginning of this. Uh, when you're looking at manpower for Iran, that's not talking about people who maybe fight for Hezbollah, Hamas, Fatah, you know, the PLO, these other different groups that uh, Iran funds more than anybody else. Yeah, they're really, they're pushy, is is what the Bible says about them. They have a pushy foreign policy. Uh, Make sure you listen for the uh, Trumpet Daily Radio Show, Richard Palmer today, taking that one, and uh, talks a lot about the situation in Germany over there. Uh, It's good to catch up on that. You know they formed their government, but nobody's happy. And I think he wrote up the other, he wrote the other day about how usually when you have like a coalition, you try to make as many people as happy as possible. And in this case, they made everyone unhappy. <laughs> so uh, things aren't looking great over there. And and Angela Merkel's on pretty uh, shaky ground. So uh, it's interesting to see what's happening over there. And he he talks about it on the Trump Daily today. Yeah, it was pretty much one of the worst uh, possible scenarios for her to have to resort to extremely liberal and extremely conservative parties trying to work together to form a coalition parties that have absolutely nothing in common. And really the only incentive they have to work together is to have a piece of the ruling majority. 
However, that's going to probably hurt their standing with voters. If they are seen compromising with someone whose ideals are totally opposite, how many votes are they even going to get next time? So they're putting themselves in a bad situation regardless. Yeah, whenever they try to mix groups together like that, I'm sure the thinking is, well, we'll come to some sort of consensus in the middle. But what really usually happens is you just have people on very opposite sides of a of a topic and they just sit there and fight against each other all the time. Very, hey, We see that in the U.S. all the time. When's the last time that the Democrats and the Republicans really came together and formed some sort of solution or whatever that they all agree on? Uh, there might be something somewhere down the road. I suppose if everybody gets gets paid, maybe like in a budget or something, <laughs> yeah. like you get some money, I get some money. But when it comes to immigration or you know anything, it's just bitter division all the way down the line. Well, yeah, you definitely see that here because anytime Mr. Trump tries to do any sort of bipartisan agreement on immigration or the budget, the media reports it as he capitulated, he gave in, he lost the battle just because he went part way in the Democrats' direction. Not a whole lot of incentive there if the media is trashing you every time you even give an inch. Uh, and that's probably a similar thing as to what's happening in Germany. Yeah. Yeah, you bring up a good point. If you're a politician, you want to win and you want to get, stay in office typically. But if you're if you're seen to be somebody that's <clears throat> capitulating, as they say, then uh, that's where it becomes a problem because next time you come up for election – the more extreme candidate will say, "I won't budge an inch, not like this guy," <laughs> and then you're out on the, you're out on your ear. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that's probably uh, some of what goes on over there in the politics. But uh, anyway, Trump Daily Radio Show today. Grant, you've got a write up for us here from Fox News. Marriage is a great anti poverty program. So why does government discourage it? It's true. When you look at poverty or, or financial problems, the number one cause is divorce. Yes, and today is actually the end of National Marriage Week USA. So <laughs> I didn't even know we had that. Yeah, it's pretty pretty interesting. And this woman who writes this piece is actually an advocate for this group. And she's talking about how liberals and conservatives alike are actually in favor of this solution that she's proposed, um, basically to fix the problem of so many people... Uh, benefiting so much from welfare that they don't want to get married because their spouse's uh, income would actually be less than the government benefits that they're already on. Oh, I see. So people are are probably cohabitating. Coupling? Is that what they call it? Coupling, cohabitating. Uh, yeah. Cohab cohabitating or cohabiting? Something One like of those that. two. Yeah. yeah. But, so, but it would hurt them financially if they're in that situation, they think. Yeah. At least, at least those are the numbers that they're seeing right away if they were to get married. So really... Um, they're trying to find a solution to get people uh, to actually get married. Right. Yeah, she has an example here just to try to make this uh, clear, the, the situations that she's talking about. Uh, she says, for example, let's say a couple is living together, unmarried, with their two children. Each partner has a low-wage job and a poverty-level income. The single mother and her two children get payments through the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program run by the federal government and their state. But if the mother marries the father, their combined income is just a bit too high to qualify for government assistance, so they lose their monthly payment. To avoid that, the two don't get married. Yeah. That's that's what people are doing. They're living together. They have kids. Separately, the two parents are receiving government benefits, and if they got married, the benefits would completely disappear. Hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's uh, obviously living in that situation is not... Uh according to what the Bible um, has as for the way families should be. 
And uh, it's one of those things where I think if if people were um, Bible believers in some fashion, that's where you would have to have faith and say, you know what, we need to we need to do this the right way. And then I'm, you know, we'll have to count on God to bless us mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, yeah, if you were just looking at the numbers, you'd think, oh man, why would I do that? But, but again, that's not thinking about the actual law of God when it comes to marriage, which um, uh, I don't think is thought about a lot. <laughs> if you can believe the statistics, <laughs> right? God's God's law on this is actually pretty straightforward, and He talks about in the Bible about just making sure that you have your house in order that you are self-sufficient and ready to actually support having a family and you shouldn't get married or even get into a sexual relationship in any way especially not if you if you can't financially sustain it right because really what this is it's if you if you look at the foundation of it it's a lot of bad decisions and mistakes that have led to the this point for some people because why why are they in that situation to begin with so i can see where they're looking at the problem and saying okay maybe we can you know change the way that the government does their payout system to help people but really if you want to look at the solution it starts way earlier in life don't get into bad situations exactly and uh she has this incredible statistic here that just proves pretty dogmatically that marriage is even a better financial institution to be in uh she says that if the u.s uh had the same marriage rates in 1970 when 79 percent of adults were married there'd be 25% less poverty today. But there's only 52% of people married, not 79%. So the poverty is what it is instead of being 25% lower. Yeah, because if you're looking at the numbers in kind of a vacuum, you'd think uh, you wouldn't probably see the whole picture there because the reality is a lot of these people, I guess whether they're married or whether they're not, they're not going to even stay together. They're going to go find another situation, and then there's usually more kids, and it get, it just gets more convoluted, and it gets more difficult financially. And so it's it's just this continual uh, way of life that's leading to these problems. And some some point you either have to fix the lifestyle, or you just can, the problems will just multiply. Right, you have to fix the lifestyle, uh, and the problem with that is just that the government incentivizes people doing it the wrong way, the way that is not at all advocated by the Bible. Uh, 82% fewer people, fewer children would be in poverty if both parents were married. So, or the likelihood of, of those, those same children growing up and being in poverty, 82% uh, fewer would actually be in poverty when they grow up too. It, it ties right into that article in the trumpet yesterday by Dennis sleep on the step family. Mm-hmm. Really, it's a crisis in the U S where there's just all these different blendings together of families. And, uh, you know, it, last night I was, we were talking the other day about some of these commercials during the Olympics. And I was watching, uh, last night a little bit of the coverage and they had a commercial for, and it was, it was for, I don't know, like a company that sells a variety of products. And, uh, but it was a political sort of, or a social sort of message. And, and one of their points was they said, uh, a household doesn't care who's in charge. And then they showed like a, some sort of, a odd assortment of individuals like you couldn't really discern what was going on and so that that they're just pushing that like yeah you can mix it up any which way you want to but even the money even the money which is a big issue for everybody doesn't work out in those situations in most cases right and those types of messages just underscore the moral climate in the country today uh it's been talked about quite a lot on both the trumpet daily radio show and the trumpet hour how the new morality says that uh 
homosexuality is normal uh, or moral. They say it's moral. Transgenderism is moral. Um, a regular traditional family that could be moral unless the man is the head of the house. That's what that's what people say now. As if the biggest danger and threat to children growing up is having a dad who's in charge. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Does the do the statistics prove that, or is that again just what people feel is right and what they think should be true? Yes, yeah, it's, it's the will worship we were talking about earlier. Forget the stats. Forget the truth of it, which you can see in hard numbers if you're willing to look. Forget all of that. And then just when things don't work out, you know, blame the institutions. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's institutional, you know, whatever they're looking at. A lot There's lots of terms out there. But the reality is because it's breaking of God's law. That's why there's the problems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the institution they need to be looking at. But again, so in this particular situation here from this Fox write-up, what are, what are they hoping to do? Are they just trying to change now, say, like the way the money is allocated to encourage people to get married? Or what are they looking at? Well, that's the part that I didn't agree with too much, uh, but at least she's trying to find a solution. She's saying that abruptly ending government assistance as soon as people get married uh, is obviously a disincentive for people to get married at all. So she proposes continuing the benefits for another year so at least people can adjust to uh, supporting themselves more. Uh, And you have to commend her for looking for a solution in some way, Uh, but at the same time, it just it, it reinforces this idea that well the government owes us our living and the government should be supporting us and I found a great quote about that uh, this is from the Daily Mail actually from about five years ago it's called it's the it's titled how our welfare system has created an age of entitlement and uh, there's this great quote in there it says idleness takes two forms today one enforced and the other voluntary. One is the result of unemployment made worse by recession, spending cutbacks, growing competition from abroad, and a dozen other economic factors. The other is the predictable effect of a dependency culture that has grown steadily over the past years. A sense of entitlement. A sense that the state owes us a living. A sense that not only is it possible to get something for nothing, but that we have a right to do so. And that's the type of entitlement that we're talking about here where maybe people aren't even working at all in some cases, and yet they're still getting payouts from the government. For what? What have they done to earn any sort of payment? Right, yeah. You can't, if you get caught up in that and you won't, that entitlement, and you won't go out and try to work and try to better yourself, then that's where you're going to sit there. You're going to be stuck in it. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the problems. Because even even if a person went out and got a job and they were working, and even if they made a little less money for a while, it wouldn't take long before they made quite a bit more mm-hmm. because they, you know, you can advance in your job or you can do things like that. So uh, that is interesting. Um, it does. Uh, this This is a Fox News write-up. Marriage is a great anti-poverty program. So why does government discourage it? And that does, uh, talking about the, the welfare state and so forth, that does lead into our, our uh, final topic for, the, for today. And uh, it's about men doing uh, hard things, working hard. Could be anybody, but it just talks about men in particular. And I saw a, uh, and it's a write-up from PCOG.org. You can find it there. It's called Men Do Hard Things. And I, I was thinking about this because I uh, have this uh, recent, recent Fortune magazine, and uh, they have an article entitled Show Your Grit, Why Life Experience is the New MBA. So, you know, uh, when you're going for your degrees, they're saying that grit is a big part of this, and employers are starting to look at that. They say, to compete in a rapidly changing world, Employers need workers who are creative, resilient, and unconventional. 
Here's how to look beyond traditional credentials to find people with real-world potential. So they're talking to employers here and saying, you know, don't just look at the resume and where did they go to school and how did they do. Like, that. that's important, but you need to get to know these people. And in some cases, maybe they don't have all the credentials exactly, but they've got grit. They've worked through some problems, and they have some real quality that actually will allow them to become more successful than somebody that maybe just kind of coasted through a pretty, you know, a normal experience um, or ha- or had were in a position to maybe go to a better school or something like that. Some people aren't, but they have a lot of potential. And so uh, I, think, I think there is some uh, value in that thinking that um, – how much grit a person has, how much are they willing to get out there and work and and face setbacks and overcome them. That's a valuable skill. Right, and that sounds really similar to the experience of some of our Herbert W. Armstrong College graduates here in Edmond, Oklahoma. There are at least two companies nearby that specifically ask for uh, Herbert W. Armstrong College graduates. Whenever they graduate, they're looking... They're looking for those graduates uh, to fill positions at their companies, and that is despite the fact that the college is unaccredited, the fact that we don't have any sort of, I guess you could say, majors. It's a liberal arts education, but at the same time, it's a practical education, and the, the students who are here actually spend the entire four years in actual jobs. They're working hard while they're here, and they're learning life skills and how to live which is worth a whole lot more than a fancy piece of paper. Yeah, and a lot of times, as you know, as an employer, you have to get your foot in the door, and sometimes that means doing a job you don't prefer at first, um, and then showing what you're made of. They give a couple of examples of some high-profile people that were pretty uh, gritty to get where they are, and really, if you look at most people that have done well, they've, they've had to be pretty gritty. Uh, they use the example of Howard Schultz, who, of course, is the uh, chairman of Starbucks, he grew up in uh, public housing in Brooklyn, surrounded by poverty, and was the first in his family to go to college on a football scholarship. After training in sales, uh, he launched the company that would later buy Starbucks. He said, in the course of the year I spent trying to raise money, I spoke to 242 people, 217 of them said no. <laughs> so they were talking about, they also talk about just how some of the jobs where, um, you know, you really need a lot of grit, sales being one of those they say you have to get used to hearing no a lot, <laughs> but keep going. They say grittier candidates accept feedback better, they work harder, and they bounce back faster from setbacks than entrepreneurs who went from prep school to the Ivy League to an MBA and beyond. Not to say that those people, you know, don't have qualities and so forth, but uh, they're just encouraging employers to take a look at uh, life experience in some cases and to find out uh, if people have that uh, quality of grit. So, with that in mind, there's this write-up from PCOG.org. Men do hard things. It says, to fulfill your duty as a man, you must routinely put in hard work, do things you don't want to do, and exert your strength to benefit others. That sounds like grit to me. Yeah, that's a hugely beneficial uh, trait to have, especially in work, but really in life in general, especially for men who have to support families and they have to lead, they have to protect and provide uh, those those types of responsibilities do require a lot of persistence, and like you said, with those with those people who just have a really nice degree but they haven't gotten the practical experience yet, where has the adversity come from? Where have they ever had to be, be abased so that they could then be exalted? Has that happened to them yet, or have they? Are they about to get a hard slap in the face by real world experience? Yeah, sometimes that comes. 
this write-up from PCOG, it says, um, on Men Do Hard Things, it says, one of the greatest losses in modern society is the willingness of men to fulfill their masculine duty of going out there and uh, doing the hard things for family and others. It says, Satan has attacked men, beaten them back, and entrapped them in selfishness. And that is what we do see. Um, and then it brings out Deuteronomy 8, where God was describing the blessings Israel would receive in the promised land, but also warned them uh, about uh, some of the danger in being blessed. Because, uh, as they say, you can get fat and happy, content and complacent, materialistic, and then don't have the desire to work or the desire to fight through problems. Is that a pretty good picture of what the United States is today? <laughs> I would, I mean, literally, uh, in many ways, yes. Yeah, and, and welfare ties into that. Um, a lot of these other issues that we're dealing with in society, the the credit trap where we feel like we can buy whatever we want to without having to work hard to save up for it, uh, and that money will always be there. It will always come. We can, we can accumulate as much credit card debt as we feel like because uh, the money will always exist. There's no, there's no hard work. There's no strain in that, but uh, the actual pitfalls are a lot more dire. Yeah. Paul prophesied, it says, about these perilous days that we see around us in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. And one of the things he said was that men shall be lovers of their own selves. And for these men, the comforts and interests of self are the most important things in life. Paul warned of people being covetous, unthankful, expecting everything, and taking it all for granted. Paul described us as incontinent without self-control, lacking strength to resist things that aren't good for us, giving in to our whims. These descriptions define our culture, and they are curses. You can think of probably 10 different things that that fit the bill for that description. You know, people not having self-control, lacking the strength to resist things that aren't good for us. Uh, well, that ties in directly to the Trumpet Daily Show from yesterday. Pornography is not good for people, but they lack the will to turn away from it or to stop it. And so, well, let's just have a class on it. Let's teach people about it. Uh, people don't have the willpower to not do drugs. Well, let's make them legal. <laughs> right? I mean, isn't that the society we're in? And it all comes back to uh, this point here in Second Timothy 3 that, well, men, or and women too, mankind, but but men in particular here, uh, lovers of their own selves, more interested in self, self-fulfillment and pleasure than uh, working to serve the family and the community. Yeah, and that applies to all kinds of vices, but even to uh, certain things that might not be uh, necessarily bad unless it's uh, bad for your situation. For example, if you've ever talked to someone who's trying to sell you like a vacation package, they say, well, you know, it's only it's only $300 for the whole week and everything's included, but you have to buy it right now. And it's like, well, what about the fact that you're supposed to budget for things and save for things before you pay for them? What if I wanted that deal, but I could only pay you in a couple of weeks or in a month? Why, why can't that deal exist then? But there's always this push for a lot of people who are trying to sell things, especially uh, they say, well, you can afford one more thing or you can, you can afford to splurge on yourself a little bit. Yeah, but sometimes it might hurt you pretty badly. Losing that $300 might not seem too big at the moment, but what if you actually needed that money for something else? Yeah, that's what that is the sales pitch a lot of times. You deserve it. Yeah. Don't you deserve it? Haven't you haven't you earned it? <laughs> haven't you earned the right? Uh, a couple of points that are given in this write-up about how to endure uh, or how to do the hard things. One of them is to endure hardness. Sometimes hard things come along. Uh, Second Timothy says was the last book that Paul wrote. 
and he wrote it from prison, which of course is an uncomfortable place. And uh, but he talked about all the hardships that he had gone through, and you can read a lot about that uh, when you read the history of Paul. I mean, he had a he had a tough go of things, a lot tougher than probably any of us. He was beaten with thirty nine stripes five times, beaten with rods three times, stoned and left for dead, shipwrecked three times, suffered in dangerous journeys, perils, weariness, pain, hunger, thirst, cold, nakedness. He lived a pretty rough life uh, in service to God. He wasn't out there, you know, causing himself crawls. He was <laughs> he was doing good things, and this was a result of it because of the persecution. But but still, he he endured those things. He, it's not like he loved it. Like oh, I you know I can't wait to get shipwrecked again. But uh, he endured it and continued on. And sometimes we have to do that. And and for us today in society, thankfully, I don't think we're in those situations. But like you, you pointed out, sometimes we have to endure waiting to get something until we can afford it, or we have to endure, um, you know, whatever it might be. There, there's a lots of things that are, that, uh, it might be better to just say, I'm not going to do that right now, even though, uh, I, there's a temptation to. Yeah. It's easier. It's more comfortable for the moment. And yet usually those things end up tearing down character. If we, if we frequently buy on impulse or we, uh, just have one more drink or whatever, whatever is, uh, pushed on us and we just give into it those things tear down character they don't help us grow in any way they don't help us to please god in any way and so there obviously is a lot of there are a lot of things where we have to say no to them because we have the long view in mind we know that uh, giving in to lust for example uh, that will not make us happy in any way long term right the second point brought out here ties into what you're saying there about the character and that is to just uh smile through trial which is uh it's it's sound, i mean it sounds like sort of a, a platitude or something but i mean there is a real point here that uh you you have to not only just you know accept some things but make the best of it it says god doesn't simply want you to uh grit your teeth all the time as you're battered by difficulties he wants you to learn to smile through it uh winston churchill uh, the examples given of him he said if you're going through hell keep going you don't want to stay there. <laughs> right. <laughs> you got to keep going. And, of course, the best example of this is uh, Christ, who uh, did sacrifice everything for the God family. and uh, But he considered it a joy, even though at moments it was extremely, extremely hard, obviously. And we're getting to that time of year where we think more about Christ and what he went through. But uh, but he set the perfect example in that of, of doing hard things. I mean, he had to go through the hardest things and set the example. But he didn't do it for himself. He was doing it for other people. And so that's a, a wonderful example to think about just as we sometimes have to endure a few hard things. Right. I mean, those examples of Paul and Christ are about as powerful as you could possibly think of because they both uh, had to endure savage beatings and intense persecution. Both ended up being killed. And yet, even knowing they were about to die, they were rejoicing, basically. They were excited because uh, they knew that the, what the future held. They had vision, which is a big reason why we would actually endure hardness in the first place. If we didn't even think that anything was awaiting us, if we, if there was no reward for all the suffering, no one would ever do that. So you have to see pretty clearly uh, what the future holds. Yeah. The, it's pointed out here too, that there obviously is this great future, as you said, and, and it says that God has a tremendous future waiting for you and you have to grow to be ready for it. You'll never make it if you stay in your comfort zone. And that point was even brought out in that uh, article from uh, Fortune magazine that I was talking about with grit. They gave an example of a young fellow that uh, was in a hard situation, grew up in a hard situation, but he wanted to improve. And so 
he uh, he looked for opportunities to take classes and 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 get into opportunities that were uncomfortable for him. And one of them was a speaking program. They had a, a particular speaking club. It was called the Toastmaster Club. And he he went and he became part of it. And he actually became sort of the leader of the club. And he said it was one of the most uncomfortable things he's ever done. But from that, he got seen. Uh, he was seen and then met his future boss who hired him to, uh, uh, to a pretty successful company as a salesperson and, and leading up some other groups. But he had to put himself in a situation he was not comfortable with, in this cl- in case public speaking. But because he did that and stepped out of his comfort zone, he got a career out of it. And that doesn't sound like the kind of person who uh, hears the alarm and then goes back to sleep for the rest of the day because he doesn't want to face his challenges. Not He's not a, a whiner or a complainer. He's someone who uh, definitely saw the opportunities that were ahead of him, knew how hard some of them were going to be, but he pushed through them and, w- and was rewarded for it. And that's a, a great example, too. Yeah. The write-up is called, uh, or it's titled, Men Do Hard Things. It's at PCOG.org. And it's part of a, a larger booklet on biblical manhood that you can get as well. So uh, check that out when you get a chance uh, to do so. It's a great write-up and a great book. That's all the time we have for today on Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for gritting it out with us uh, today. Uh, that was a tie back in, by the way, to that, part of that article. Uh, for Grant Turgeon and myself, Dwayne Falk, have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. You're listening to Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG.